Hello and welcome to the final episode in this podcast series. We've had some fantastic guests over the past few weeks and we've covered an awful lot of ground. We've looked at everything from the H2H salt end project in the Humber through to deep dives into carbon capture and storage technologies and hydrogen infrastructure, as well as a really fascinating discussion about the importance of education and skills in building the net zero workforce of the future. Now, in this final episode, we're going to take a step back and look at the UK's roadmap to achieving net zero emissions by 2050, including the crucial role of government policy in ensuring the UK meets its legally binding climate targets. My first guest is Chris Stark, the CEO of the UK Committee on Climate Change, or CCC as it's more commonly known. It's an independent body that advises the UK and devolved governments on their emissions targets and reports on progress made in cutting greenhouse gas emissions. The CCC plays a vital role in shaping UK government policy when it comes to climate change and achieving net zero emissions. So I started by asking Chris to give me an overview of the scale of the challenge that the UK faces in meeting net zero emissions by 2050 and some of the key components that we have to deliver if we are to get there. I've been in this job for four years and it feels like for most of those four years we've been thinking about those issues of scale. I came into this job and we had a different target. We had an 80% target and you'll remember that James, 80% by 2050. And it's worth remembering actually that at the time we got a request from ministers not to look at net zero, but to look at whether we had the right target. And kind of one of the first jobs I had was to ask that question. And we concluded that it was time to raise the nation's ambition to net zero. And all manner of things has happened since we gave that advice and it is worth just kind of checking in on the kind of changes that lie ahead for us in reaching net zero. Uh, net zero has become this term that we sort of bandy around a bit but actually it's very very meaningful, it's very very challenging to get to net zero, entirely possible for us to do so but it does involve some big changes. When it comes to the energy system we're talking about doubling at least the size of the power system from where we are today but that's not quite enough. So we need something alongside that doubling of the power system. We'll need new source of low carbon energy alongside that to replace those applications that where we presently use fossil fuels and where electrification isn't going to do the job. And that's hydrogen. And the hydrogen sector itself becomes almost as big as the power sector today by 2050. So it's about two thirds of the size in our central pathway. So this dramatic shift that's happening over the next 30 years Again, entirely feasible shift, but um, in, just in, in, in pure energy terms, that's the you know that's a big, big, big change. And in the work that we've done in the CCC, we've looked not just at how you supply energy, but the crucial thing of what you do to change the demand for energy as well. And when you sort of stand back from all that, what does that actually mean? Well, it means investing. It means doing a lot of capital investment over the course of the next 30 years. Uh, we estimate that it's around an extra 50 billion pounds of capital investment across the economy each year from about 2030 onwards. The government says it's about 60 billion. So, you know, give or take 10 billion. That's a lot of extra capital investment. We're adding about an eighth to the total capital investment that the economy would do if we weren't aiming for a, for net zero. But the fascinating thing for me is that what that capital investment is doing is not just putting throwing up a few wind farms and a few solar farms or maybe even a new nuclear power station. Most of it actually is replacing the capital assets that we use, uh, individuals and corporates day to day, the cars, the boilers, uh, replacing that with something zero carbon. And it's that that's the big challenge, actually, the, alongside the supply challenges. And um, the fascinating thing is that those new capital assets that we'll be using in the future, the heat pumps and the electric vehicles, 
are actually much, much, much more efficient in their use of energy and therefore are actually cheaper to use and run. So actually the overall impact on the economy at the end of this, big as this transition is, is not really one of cost. It's actually that you end up in a much better place at the end of this, regardless of the view on climate change, much more kind of efficient use of energy. In fact, we think that energy demand will have over that period, which is quite a thing to say. That's because we're not using these really inefficient fossil fuels um, and using much better sources of energy in the future. So all in all, big task, but totally worth it. Do, do you think it's understood the, the scale of what is being undertaken here? I, I mean, even amongst policymakers and some of the businesses that are heavily involved in this, I, I, I sometimes get the impression not everyone fully comprehends that the sheer scale of new infrastructure investment, the increase in power capacity, the the transformation of entire industries, all inside quite tight timeframes. And it, 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 I'm, I'm, is that fair to say that, yeah, we, not everyone has internalised quite how significant, quite how challenging, but also how big an opportunity this could be? I think that is fair, uh, although I think more and more people are aware of the scale. Um, it, I, it, I, and to some degree, I think that's inevitable. I mean, I think we were making incremental progress on many of these issues and now need to do something much more fundamental. We always did, but net zero seems to have had this kind of impact as a as a sort of a badge. You know, people understand net zero means something that an 80% target doesn't. Uh, I occasionally talk about this, you know, but when we had an 80% target, I think lots of people thought they were in the 20. <laughs> net zero means everything. And I think that's a fundamental nature of the change that lies ahead is something that people are starting to clock. But I mean, in reality, do people have people had the opportunity to think things through to the extent that I have or my organization has? No, I don't think they have. And I might include ministers in that group. You know, that, that, that this, the scale of the challenge that lies ahead is is a major one. But the, an the analysis that underpins it is really clear. It's not just our analysis. It's, it's you know, countless commentators and, and analysts on this topic point to net zero being the right goal and to the, you know, the pragmatic need to change. And I think the more that we get into that, the better, actually, that, that the more that we that, that we start to think of it as a, a pragmatic, big but pragmatic change, the better. Well, one of the sort of the the, the sort of optimi oh, sorry, optimistic ways of looking at this, and, and government says this a lot, is we have made a lot of progress already, that, that we're making considerable progress. There's a lot of progress that's been made over the last decade and lots of changes baked in that are definitely going to happen over the coming decade. I mean, can you just unpack that a little bit as to how far we've come? And then I suppose, you know, what are the remaining big challenges? Where are the obstacles that still need to be addressed? Most of the progress that the UK has made is in the power sector. So we have, uh, I, mean, I mean, let's talk in broad brush numbers. Last year, the amount of power that was consumed in my house, 50% of it was from zero carbon means. Um, that is a massive step forward. You know, many countries around the world are not in that position. So the UK has been doing pretty well on that front if, if decarbonisation is the thing that you care about and the UK has done okay. Um, but that 50%, is is you know it's it's only halfway and I would say it's the easiest bit it's the bit that's next that's that you know that's that's really interesting so in terms of energy supply what where we are today is that we have uh, very recently seen from the government a commitment that we will have fully decarbonized power production by 2035 that was in the in the in the in the dying weeks of last year the government made that commitment that is a very big and important commitment for the government to make because effectively what they're saying 
is that to anyone living and working in the UK, that by 2035, use your electrical device with confidence, it will be zero carbon. Because that's the next frontier, actually, is that the it's the change in our demand for electricity, the things that we do in the real world, that we have not really seen much change at all in. So in terms of where we stand today, yes, we have been doing quite well in the power sector, but when you look across all the other challenges that we have in transport, uh, in domestic heat, in industrial heat, uh, you can even go into things like land use and agriculture, um, we haven't really started to make the big shift. So I think that's, for me, where the big the big next step lies, because we will need to start moving more rapidly towards you know, a fully decarbonised transport system. I happen to think we will especially through the move to electric vehicles. And there are even bigger challenges, I would say, around things like domestic heat and how energy efficient buildings are in this country, where we've, again, barely started the challenge overall. So, uh, you know, we're, we're doing OK, but we're not really on track to where we need to be yet. So this is the crucial decade. It's 75 percent of the change in the 2030 target that we advise to ministers is accounted for by industry emissions. So that means that in the five years since we offered that advice, we have dramatically shifted our outlook on how quickly you can cut emissions from industry. And the reason that we've been able to do that is because we've built a very different understanding of what must be done to decarbonise British industry. And there's a set of things that need to be done, notably switching fuels, so moving as much as we can towards electrifying industrial processes, but also moving to hydrogen as a, as a source of, uh, uh, as a fuel for industry. Carbon captures in there too. Um, and the key thing is kind of early investment to make sure that we catch asset replacement cycles in industry because we know that assets are used for a long time in industry. Now, when you bring all that together, that really points to the importance of these industrial hubs. And we, we know where they are across the country and we need to decarbonize them as rapidly as possible. And actually, once we do, we will have decarbonized industrial processes happening in the UK. And instead of worrying about offshoring industry, we can talk about reshoring industry. And I'm really excited about that prospect. People will come to the UK because we have low carbon industry processes taking place here and low carbon energy. But this really is one of the front lines now of climate policy because we're right into things like the emissions trading scheme, carbon taxes, what we do with carbon border adjustments or taxes on carbon at the on imports. Uh, you know, really, really, really post Brexit, like one of the key policy challenges for this government and all, of course, needs to take place over this this decade. So I think this is one of the most exciting areas of climate policy at the moment. Um, and of course, it follows if we don't get this right in the next few years, then it means that we will be way off track from these um, net zero goals that are now enshrined in law. So it, it's it's frontline in policy terms. It's also frontline in uh, you know, the reality of achieving it. Environmental groups are quite wary of these technologies, maybe in a way they haven't been of some other clean technologies. I mean, can you just sort of unpack maybe some of those concerns and 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 ad address some of them? How, how can we yeah. how can we deliver these these sort of new industries with the engagement of fossil fuel companies in many cases, whilst ensuring the transition remains credible and doesn't get derailed by locking in new new fossil fuel infrastructure? Well, it's a beautifully framed question, James, because I think you've captured all of the issues that we see here, because it would be lovely to think of a world where we could simply stop using fossil fuels and switch immediately to the alternatives. And many of the people in uh, the green community, I'm afraid, have a, a, in my view, a rather too simplistic view about that. 
uh, it's a transition. So we've got a big shift ahead of us. And as I mentioned already, there's a lot of investment required in that transition. And the kind of companies that have the balance sheet to make those investments, I'm afraid, occasionally are in the fossil fuel business. So, you know, there's a choice, I suppose, if you're if you're in the environment game. Do you work with those companies to try and encourage them to change their strategy? Or do you say, actually, they are, uh, you know, they are not they, they are not a group that we can work with at all. And I'm, I'm in the former category. I think you need to, you need these companies to, to make the transition. I think it follows if those companies have uh, greenwash, as we call it, if they've got false um, uh, prospectus for their their credentials on on climate change, then then you know they are, they, they 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 are pariahs. But I'd, I get the sense, at least in the UK, that that's not the case. That we've got legitimate investment plans taking place now, being rolled out across the economy. But it does take us into some really contentious issues because if we're going to decarbonise fuel supply, if we're going to decarbonise heavy industries, manufacturing, construction industries then we are going to need to use hydrogen as a fuel. One thing that strikes me as really interesting about the zero carbon cluster projects and, and taking the Humber as an example is how multifaceted it is. You, you know, you've, you've got sort of your underpinning carbon capture and transport and storage infrastructure. You've got the, the renewable power coming in off the North Sea from offshore winds. You've got plans for uh, blue hydrogen with H2H salt ends. You've got plans for uh, a hydrogen fired power station. You've got biomass energy carbon capture and storage the list goes on and on and on how you've got multiple players and multiple types of infrastructure all hopefully linking together and being developed in conjunction um obviously with sort of well uh, comparably complicated and interlocking policy to make that happen as well um how important is that collaboration obviously the answer is going to be very but but also how do you nurture it how how do you deliver you know, one of these projects would be complicated. Making them all knit together at the same time and developing the same it, along similar lines strikes as a particularly unique challenge for many businesses, investors, and policymakers. Yeah, but it's so exciting, isn't it? I mean, just the way you've described it, James. I, I mean, I, I think that sounds really, really exciting. And and you know, we've got a few of these projects across the UK, and we'll need a few more, I suspect. But that for me is the opportunity here that you could, that you do need to bring together these various aspects of this transition in one place. You know, you've got you've then got a kind of cluster of, you know, point source emissions that you can get rid of, um, and a and a modernised process of industrial production taking place using these uh, you know, new energy uh, new energy technologies that we will need in a net zero future. Um, it does rely, I, I think it's really important to say this, we, we often talk about government as though they are the kind of sole arbiter here, that they are the, the only people that can make this happen. And of course they can help, but in, the, in reality it's about a set of commercial relationships and having that value chain in one place really, really matters. I mean, I think that this is what's so exciting about that, that you know, the Humber project is that it's bringing together all of those different aspects. Not all of them are going to be as successful as we think, some will be much more successful um, than we perhaps think at the moment. But um, that's the point. That's why we've got to try. I think once you've got this up and running, you're not going to go back to something based on fossil fuels either. So it, for me, it feels like such an exciting moment because finally we're getting round to this. Now we're actually doing the things that people have been talking about for a decade and more. And um, I really think that the UK can benefit from that. 
next up i wanted to speak to those involved directly in developing the actual policies business models and frameworks that we're going to need to chart this path to net zero emissions by 2050. so i spoke with will goodhand from the department for business energy and industrial strategy mercedes moroto valla from the industrial decarbonisation research innovation center and will joyce from innovate uk I kicked off the discussion by asking them what sorts of technologies they would expect to see playing a role in these industrial clusters, ranging from areas such as hydrogen to carbon capture and storage. What's important to recognise is that um, kind of industrial clusters are kind of you know uh, complex configurations of industry, and they've they've come together with this this common goal of decarbonising, and that's actually something that we've not seen um, on a scale like this anywhere before in the world, and actually. Emitters and and TNS providers and and industries within the industrial cluster all have different things to offer um, to essentially decarbonise the entire industrial cluster. I mean, take for example the the zero carbon Humber project in Humber. I mean, they're looking to develop um, the world's first carbon negative power station, um, the world's largest hydrogen production plant, um, the UK's first decarbonised gas power station, additional hydrogen production capacity, and also kind of low carbon steel production. So it's all these different things coming together in this big sort of CCS network and and hydrogen network, which will decarbonise the entire of the cluster and and actually thinking about expansion options as well once once these these technologies are established for, for industrial locations and sites. What needs to change to really accelerate the progress that's, that's required if we are to deliver on time? So you're right, James. I think we are doing quite a lot of the right things. I think we are not doing enough of, of all the right things that we need to do. Um, we already heard about the deployment infrastructure projects that are um, cluster plans, roadmaps already, development in the industrial clusters. And there is also research and innovation that needs to happen to really accelerate. Overall, what we are looking here is really providing a portfolio of solutions. Uh, within those solutions, there will be technologies, but also we need to have business models, as Will already said before. And let's not forget also the policy and the regulatory framework. So we need to accelerate all these areas together and really by doing that is when we are going to start bringing down the costs, the timescales, the risks that we need to also take down as well. And overall, as I said, uh, is that research, that innovation will be critical, particularly as we move towards the 2030s, where there is more uncertainty in terms of the mix of technologies that we will be deploying. Well, we've heard a lot in this podcast series about the need for business models. And, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a feeling, I suppose, that the, in some ways the ball's in the government's court here, that the, the plans have been advanced, they're moving forward. Uh, you, you, the technology, you know, carbon capture has been proven on uh, uh, other sites. Uh, but the next step is this this big economic financial hurdle that needs to be overcome, policy hurdle. I mean, can you just give us an overview of what the government's current thinking is on, on how you can get these businesses to the final investment decision and show to them that they can do this in a way that is economic and they're not going to lose money on it? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I think I think Mercedes is right. You know, it is very much a government industry partnership bringing in the wider sort of uh, sectors and, and innovation that's that's vital uh, but government does have does have the important role of I think setting the right sort of commercial frameworks in which businesses invest against so currently we are designing new business models for CCUS and also hydrogen so on CCUS uh, I think we've learned some of the lessons of previous uh, attempts at doing CCUS in the UK so we are creating new business models targeted at each individual bit of the CCUS sort of value chain, for example. So there's a business model for, for power CCS, for industrial carbon capture and for the CO2 transport and storage infrastructure. 
and similarly a, a, another one based on hydrogen production. And really the, the, the purpose of that is to provide certainty to industry that they get uh, a return on the capital they invest as well as proportion of the operational costs uh, of a project over a defined contractual time. And the purpose is, yes, they invest against it, they can raise the finance, and also it creates the right sort of trajectory in terms of price reduction and cost reduction that we've seen in, for example, offshore wind, free contracts for difference. And and how does how would the government then respond to the concerns? Because, you know, one of the arguments from one side is you need to be going faster on this. It's critical to the net zero agenda. But we're also seeing the argument from the other side of kind of steady now. This is going to cost a lot. And 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 this will be effectively subsidies to these large companies to, to ensure they build this first wave of projects. Um, I mean, how does the government get that balance on you know, not over subsidising and yet still ensuring that these these projects do move forward and, and deliver the the economies of scale and cost reduction you just mentioned that, that everyone wants to see. So I'd certainly say a number of ways. One is the design of the business models. How can you make sure the cost of capital that that the, the finance sector is happy to 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 provide borrowing against that 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 cost of capital is is as low as possible. How you how you incentivise competition between projects. Uh, so you, you you try and get best value for money for 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 government for taxpayers and, and consumers, but also how do you use these support for those initial projects to also bring down the costs going forward? Uh, and I think the other thing is there's other mechanisms in which government can also bring in which helps reduce costs. So for example, uh, the industrial carbon capture business model is linked against the carbon price. So as the carbon price increases hopefully the level of subsidy from government will decrease. Similarly, there's there's measures like low carbon products market, uh, which again, can you get in, can you can can industry get a premium for selling their low carbon products? And so again, that, that subsidy uh, sort of requirement from government reduces. To the whole panel, you, I mean, you must have, you, you, I'm sure you're well aware of this critique and will have heard it. I mean, what's your, Mercedes first, what's your initial response to those concerns that this is kind of locking in another generation of fossil fuel infrastructure when at a time we want to be phasing down fossil fuels? I think is the, the key message here, James, is that the net zero is, is the end point, but there is a transition and it's a trajectory to get there. And, and as part of that transition is where we need to take care of uh, sectors uh, that are fossil fuel based, that are very energy intensive, they are highly uh, producers or emitters of CO2, and we need to help them into that transition. And within that transition, there are key technologies that are going to help us, like CCS or CCUS. Well, uh, what's the government's position on, on how you, you know, ensure this is actually supporting net zero and is, isn't potentially locking us into higher emissions for, for longer than we need? So our view is, I think, to meet net zero, you need you need a number of options to, to, to do that. And you can't close off options such as CCUS and hydrogen. Uh, in fact, you know, I think the move from 80 to 80 percent reduction to net zero sort of really underlined the crucial role that CCUS and hydrogen have to play. And I think our view is very much mirrored by the, the Climate Change Committee, International Energy Agency, IPCC and so on. I think our view is, say, for in industry, a lot of those emissions are caused by process emissions. So, you know, it's very hard to abate unless you change that process. It's not necessarily about fossil fuel use in, in say, cement, for example. And so that's where CCUS has a really important role to play. And similarly, uh, I agree with, with what Mercedes says around the sort of transition role of, say, blue hydrogen, uh, where it can, re you know, it can create uh, volume, 
of low carbon hydrogen in the 2020s. Yeah, the, the Climate Change um, Committee recognised that carbon capture and storage is um, absolutely necessary for the UK to achieve net zero. So um, I think kind of what the, the public needs to do and what we all need to do is just recognise the importance of this technology. There's there's no other um, alternative for the, the heavy industries and heavy emission sites such as um, steel production and cement production other than CCS um, to enable them to sustainably continue where, where carbon dioxide is kind of an integral component of that industrial process so I think kind of it's it's really a case of we've all got to get behind and embrace these technologies now and also kind of recognize that the value that they have to offer in terms of um, job creation and um, investment into regions and and um, kind of the, the leadership that these big projects are, are providing for our industrial clusters. What keeps you awake at night? What worries you about you know where are the challenges that still lie ahead of us? Yeah good question. Uh, I think you know, this is this is really the third. Some may even argue the fourth time that the UK has really uh, tried to deploy CCUS in the UK. Um, so I think one one thing that definitely keeps me up away is is you definitely need to get it right this time. Um, and so uh, you know, I think it's it's making sure that uh, we use the momentum that has that has gathered across government and with industry and wider. To, to ensure we actually get projects taking a final investment decision next year um, and, and operational by the mid-2020s. We really need to, you know, test the commercial models in practice, test the technology, bring and, and that will, I think, in turn help support innovation, more projects coming online and, and so on. But I think it, it's, it's really making sure we get it right this time. And, and Will, is it is it fair to say that within those risks, technology isn't as much of a concern as it was a few years ago. I mean, we've heard from lots of people saying, you know, there are carbon capture and storage projects around the world that are working, that are capturing upwards of 90% of the emissions from industrial plants and power plants. I mean, are you fairly comfortable as somebody who works on the kind of the research and innovation space that that, that this is there might not be many projects, but this is a, in some ways quite a mature technology now. I think absolutely, yes. I think um, kind of the, the innovation is really the deployment of this technology at scale. I mean, that's something that, that hasn't been done at scale before. I mean, small-scale CCS projects absolutely work, but kind of the, the scale and the ambition for the projects that we have in the UK in terms of um, decarbonising those complex configurations of industry, I mean, the Humber is a, a classic example. But I think, you know, our projects, they've developed tremendous momentum over the last few years, and they've, they've really kind of... Um, got themselves in a position, you know, where they're in developing their their projects and they're in advanced in advanced stages of development at the at the moment of the be entering operation this decade. And kind of that in parallel with our our unique offshore storage capacity in the UK, we have a tremendous um, offshore storage capacity in the North Sea and the the Irish Sea to be able to capture and store those CO2 emissions in perpetuity under the ground as well. That's not necessarily something that other parts of the world have um, readily available. So I think kind of those two things in combination really do sort of shine a you know bright light on on CCS um, for the UK and this decade for our projects. And, and let's let's finish on an optimistic note then. Given given as you say, we have that kind of geographical and industrial potential advantage. You've got these clusters. Um, you know what happens if we can get them built and delivered because they are world leading, and we hear that phrase a lot. But no one else in the world sort of has a fully operational carbon capture cluster and everywhere is going to need them if we're to get to a global net zero emission economy. I mean, Mercedes, what happens if the UK can take that leadership position and demonstrate that this is doable? Well, uh, I think I would like to keep the optimistic uh, 
end here. You know, I think we we have put everything in place to make this happen. Uh, this is not just something that has only been developed and, and thought of in the last couple of years. It's been quite a long journey till we have got here. There are things we have not done right in the past around uh, some of the deployment of these projects, but I think we we did pick up the lessons learned. And I think we, we do have the right environment. I think we are in a very different place now with this net zero reduction cost. And I think something as well that I'm very optimistic is that, and, and I think that's where the UK really stands a really big chance here, is that for the first time, we have three elements and three activities working together. We have a cluster plans or roadmaps. We have deployment projects or infrastructure. And at the same time, we have a research and innovation center, IDRIC, working together. And I think it's the combination of those three elements what is putting the UK in a unique position to actually be able to lead the world. That brings us to the end of this Destination Zero podcast series by Equinor and Business Green. I hope that you found the last six episodes illuminating and engaging. I've certainly hugely enjoyed hosting them. I'd like to thank my fantastic guests from this episode, Chris Stark from the CCC, Will Goodhand from Bayes, Mercedes Moroto-Valla from the IDRIC, which is easy for you to say, and Will Joyce from Innovate UK. Thanks also to the many other guests who have contributed their time to take part in this series over the last few weeks. If you'd like to find out more about any of the topics discussed in this series, please visit the Equinor UK website, where you'll also find links to the other five episodes in this series. And of course, you can keep up to date with all of the news and analysis in this fascinating field on Business Green. Thanks again for listening.